Good morning. Oh, good. We'll see how many are still with us at the end. Would you like to take your Bible, the one in front of you, one of the nice new ones, and look at Matthew chapter 4. And we're going to start just where the reading began, at verse 12. The passage we've just had read to us actually breaks into two parts. You probably noticed that. The first was Jesus coming and starting his preaching ministry, and then the second is the call of the disciples. And it's rather, there's a rather startling aspect to this, which I hope by the end you'll appreciate and think, my, there's something special here. Let's just attend to it. It begins with the end of the era when <clears throat> John the Baptist has been taken away from the public stage. Three things happen, um, and Jesus begins his ministry. And yet, this amazing fact is just portrayed before us in a few words. Jesus came, began to preach, repent, the kingdom of heaven has come near. The, the Gospel of Matthew up to this point is introducing Jesus. From this point, for the rest of, of the, all the chapters right to the end, it is the public ministry of Jesus. So this is the starting point, really. We've been prepared, we've been introduced, and now it all happens. And yet Matthew just takes a few words to introduce it, and immediately goes on to talk about the call of the disciples. That's an interesting balance. I'd have thought it'd be the other way around. Wouldn't you, if you were starting this story, have started with some great dramatic thing Jesus did to, to mark the beginning of his new ministry? But Matthew just says, sums it up, a few words. I think it's nine words in the English, seven in the Greek. Let me just... And then gets really involved in the calling of the disciples. Well, let's just look at that first part before we come to the calling of the disciples. What have we? The time has arrived. John is now in prison, so the stage is now clear for Jesus. The location is right. That means that John, uh, sorry, Jesus is now in Galilee. Now, you'll probably recall that in Galilee, Galilee is north. It's in the north. It's, it's where the people who weren't the real serious Jews lived. It was a mixed place. There were people from all over the world who lived there. And Galilee was always the slightly rural place where uh, alternative things happened. And it's not insignificant that Jesus' ministry didn't begin in Jerusalem or in Judea, but actually up in Galilee. So the time is right, the place is right, and now Jesus is ready for action. Because just before this, you get this, the story presented to us of Jesus in the desert uh, battling with the devil. Different temptations are put into his way, and he wrestles and wins. And so it's almost as if, right, he's got his spurs, now he's ready for ministry. And then verse 17 from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, if you um, think about that, how would that be heard? Now, I'd like to look, if, if, just to pause for a moment. I would like to suggest a metaphor and see if this is helpful. Um, I think the way our minds work can be likened to having a private TV inside your head. So you look at something over there and the images or the data or whatever it is is fed into your mind and your mind creates a picture there and you look at the picture in your mind of what you, is happening over there. Make sense? There's an intermediate stage. 
There's what happens over there, there's what happens in our head, and there's us looking at what happens in our head. Hmm, okay. Well, just give it a whirl for today. You can abandon it in 10 minutes, well, uh, 75 minutes time. Uh, because, you see, that understanding in our mind is what we really live by. In our head, we may say, okay, we know Jesus is like this and that. But we live by the picture we have in our mind. And my experience is that most of us have pictures in our mind which are not that close to the New Testament pictures of who Jesus is and what God is like. Some of the pictures in our mind have been honed by our experiences of faith and disappointment, honed by the way our lives have led us, the people we've known, what we've thought, what's happened to us. And the responsibility, I think, as we grow as Christians is to take that understanding in our mind and bring it to Scripture and let Scripture remake it so we're more likely to live according to what Jesus is really like rather than what we think he's like because that's what it seems he's like because that was my experience of him. If I can give uh, an analogy. Um, I, I became a Christian I mean, we all become Christians in different ways, um, because I felt that in Jesus I saw the way, the truth, and the life, and particularly the truth. Um, I was one of these people who used to love debates and arguments and could go on to two o'clock in the morning. Uh, Is there anybody else here? (laughs) And so Jesus was the truth, and I I realized that, um, and I went to a church, which was um, a good Bible-believing church. It made the mistake, I have to say, when, we, when the, the preacher preached, everybody sat down, uh, naturally, at the end of him, sat down, we had a prayer, the preacher preached, and all the lights were turned out apart from the light on the preacher. So you had this lovely warm glow and a little light in the distance, so you could sleep if you needed. And many did. But I was convinced that Jesus was the truth, but I, having realised that, I didn't want him any closer because I realise that if this is truth you can't mess with there's no other way and therefore he will have claims upon me and so I held out and I remember we had a, a, in the youth group I used to help lead the youth group and we did a survey and my then girlfriend Judy and I did this survey together naturally you do don't you and, and, and it read out one of the questions was what's your favourite colour I mean who cares and it, then it, of course you got to the business about um, uh, what do you think a Christian is and finally are you a Christian yet? So we were doing this survey, so we ordered the colours and the cars we like, Porsches and stuff like that. And we got down to the, um, what's a Christian? And I said, a Christian is somebody who's opened their lives to Christ and is following him rather than following their own way. And Judy, who was looking over my shoulder, it's funny how sometimes they do. Then she said, do you know, that's spot on. I said, I think it's spot on too. And then she said, and are you a Christian yet? And I said, no. And she said, David, surely you're a Christian. You say the prayer so loudly, <laughs> Well, I don't know what she meant, really. I knew that I wasn't a Christian. And then when I did become a Christian, somebody said, isn't it wonderful, David, that God is your heavenly father? And I said, yes, okay. Because my father was somebody who cared for us as a family, but he went out at seven o'clock in the morning, came back at six o'clock at night, and he was whacked, worn out. And when he got back, he used to have to sit down before tea. And mum used to say, don't disturb your dad, he's had a long day. And so my association of father was not somebody who was close and you went to talk to or shared your thing. My association of my father was somebody who had done good things for me, but shouldn't be disturbed. 
And that was the picture I had when somebody said, do you know God your father? I said, oh dear. I mean, sort of. Because the understanding in my mind was saying that's what father is like. Now Matthew realized that we're all like that. We all have our understandings. And for him, the really important thing is to be a disciple. Because a disciple is somebody who's learning, relearning, being introduced into that which is really true. And that, I think, is what Jesus talks about. So when he said, repent, how would that be heard? By the people of that day, it would be something like this. Just change your way of life. Don't go on as you're living now. And then the bit about having the kingdom drawing near. Well, God is king. He's now decided to come amongst us and make a difference even before the end of time. Many of us think that repentance is turning away from bad things, naughty things. And it is. But that is only one example of repentance. Repentance is far deeper than that. Repentance is saying, I'm going to change my life. With God's help, I'm not going to live as I used to live. And there are people who've done wonderful things, good things, who have felt God has called them away from that to do something else. There's nothing wrong with what they do. But it is not what God has as a calling for them at that moment. Repentance is saying, I'm going to start again. It's a new way of living. It's a new lifestyle. And what that means, we have to work out as we follow Jesus. And second, God, who is king, has decided to come amongst us now and make a difference. Even before the end of time, all the Jews knew that at the end of time, God was put things right. But now what was happening is that that there were little glimpses, occasional examples of that kingdom at the end popping up here and there. It's almost as if the kingdom had been brought forward early, just here and there, to help and encourage. So that was what the first part is talking about. Jesus, the time has come. He was inviting people to a completely different way of living. And in that was going to be the reign of the king, the reign of God. Now, if you try to, as it were, unpack that a bit more, what you find is that um, both John the Baptist and Jesus use the same sort of language. John said, repent, the kingdom of God is, is is come near. Jesus said, repent, the kingdom of God has come near. John majored on repentance, and Jesus majored on the king who has come near, the spirit. John said, I baptize for repentance, he will baptize you with the spirit. Jesus introduced a new revelation of the activity of the king. Now, if we were to trace through the New Testament, in the next slide you'll see the steps of understanding unfolding as we went through. Jesus, in Matthew's Gospel, presents the kingdom of heaven. That was a a euphemism. It was a way Jews spoke of God. They tried not, as a mark of respect, to use the word God too much, so they would use heaven. It was actually the kingdom of God that was being talked about. Um, Jews had understood that by that time, it wasn't necessarily a physical kingdom, though there were some political uh, zealots who thought it should be. It was... It was where God is king. And the emphasis was not on the where, but the who. Who is the king? And then people began to realize, when Jesus said the kingdom of God is, has come near, the Greek word actually means it's within your grasp. 
It's within. It's as close as that to you. And when Jesus said that, the strange thing was, it was always he who was there who said it. So slowly the penny dropped that actually the kingdom is wherever Jesus is at work. Ah. And so, as they reflected more and more on Jesus, gradually people began to see that actually the king is Jesus. It's not just that he does prophetic stuff and healing stuff, which prophets had done before and others had healed before. Uh, there were Jews who had the gift of exorcism in his day. And there was a long ritual they'd use for casting out spirits. And they cast out spirits in the name of God. Jesus wasn't like that. He just said, go, and they went. There was something different. And gradually it became clear that Jesus is the king. It dawned. And then they looked back and thought that the word we use in the Old Testament to talk about God is the word Lord. And so they thought, rather like Thomas did, he said, Jesus, you are the Lord. And if you had been doing a Gallup poll in, first century, in the first century and had gone down the street and you'd met somebody who claimed to be a Christian, you'd say, you're a Christian, are you? they say, yeah. What does that mean? It means Jesus is Lord. And they say, what does that mean? Jesus is the one who is reigning now. That was the creed, the very first creed of the church. Jesus is the one who is reigning now. The lordship of Christ. And that's the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. If you trace through the book of Acts, you can find that the kingdom of God is mentioned at the beginning and Jesus as Lord is a little bit. And that, that swaps over as the church gradually realized that the kingdom of God is encountered wherever Jesus is Lord. So that creed, Jesus is Lord, is what it's really about. Great. Are you ready for the quiz? Good. Because there's something inside that. The kingdom is wherever Jesus is Lord. That we need, and I think this is where we need to, to, as it were, unpack. In the New Testament, Jesus is Lord is saying that Jesus is Lord. Now that's not a tautology. Jesus is Lord. He's not saying you are Lord or I am Lord. And it's not saying whatever you like or need or desire is something which will come in the kingdom. For many today, they see Jesus as the one who provides what they would like. And we are all needy and we, have, we pray and we ask him to help. And we just heard about uh, that lady. But fundamentally, that is not what Jesus is Lord is about. Jesus is Lord is saying, Jesus is Lord. He is the one, and we are called to follow him wherever we go. The great thing about this 24 hours of prayer is we've been recognizing that in a church full of people, some of whom um, have been Christians for ages, you know, longer than I've been around. I mean, as long as that. And have been prayerful and committed and sacrificial for years and years you know, they've run the youth work, then got too old, they couldn't run as fast, they couldn't catch them when they escaped, so they had to do something else, uh, whatever it was. When you have lots and lots of Christians who mean well, pray well, have got a history, then how do you discern the will of God? What does the, what's the church about? And it would be very easy in our age to think, well, let's have a vote. Deary me. Do you know, the Greeks invented democracy, but they didn't actually give it to everybody. Do you remember, they only gave it to the citizens, not to the hoi polloi, the, the rest, because they wouldn't know what to do with a vote. You couldn't be trusted. But we've, we've perfected it. 
in Ireland. So now the vote is considered to be the best way of getting a kind of consensus. How do you know what God is saying? And in answering, in that 24 hours of prayer, what we've been saying is, Lord, we are not good at hearing you. We, we have our own enthusiasms and prejudices, but we want to rise beyond that. We want to see the Jesus who is Lord. We don't want to see this is what, on balance, the bulk of people at, at ABC think is God's word to us. Isn't that right? I mean, it'd be interesting to know what you all think, but are you really bothered? Am I bothered? Wouldn't you much rather know that God is a word for us? The thing, that distinct, sorry, the thing that is distinctive about being a Christian is that somehow he has invited us to be part of what he's doing. We have been invited into a great drama, a movement down the years and across the world. And it is he, the Lord, who is the one who knows best. And we, with our own little partial views, need to say, I'm going to put that side on one side, Lord, and, and go where you want. So, one health warning. Jesus is Lord. To know Jesus, to follow him, is not to have someone who will simply do whatever we think is best. I'm staggered. If you, um, yeah. uh, if you listen to some people in prayer, their prayer goes like this. Dear Lord, zzz, Amen. But if you look at how that prayer functions, analyze it, what they basically say is, Dear Lord, we have a problem. We have decided the answer is this. Now would you kindly deliver? Thank you very much. Isn't it? And it's genuine. It's, it's not, we're, not meant to be, we're not trying to send up God. But what we're doing is we're still living the life we're called to repent of. A life where we decide where we take the decisions, where we know what's for the best. Jesus is Lord means giving away and following. We don't know what's for the best. The great thing about this is that we, we're all a bit sort of bumbly Christians. You know, sometimes on a good day it works, some others it doesn't. I was talking to somebody just now who said, you know, they didn't want to come to church this morning and it was, it was a tough job getting up and coming. And I thought, isn't it great to have somebody as honest as that? And then we were singing things about how Jesus is wonderful. And this person was saying, I couldn't get out of bed today. <laughs> but do you see, even all of the balance of the, the worship songs we use today reflects the culture we're in, which reflects our understanding. Somehow we think that Jesus, who is wonderful, is the one who's going to bless us always. And Jesus says, there's a much bigger game going on than getting you blessed, my friend. I want to make a difference in this world. I want to take the suffering and the brokenness of this world and I want to transform it. And in so doing, it's a costly exercise and I invite you to come with me and together we'll do it at cost. To be part of a movement like that. J. John the Evangelist told the story about flying across the Atlantic and somehow he'd been bumped up to a business class. Who knows why? And if somebody says he was saying his prayers, I doubt he was praying for it. So he sat there, and he, he sat by this, this American oil executive. And he was trying to work out how to explain what he did. So, so this guy says, so tell me, I can't do the accent, you know, tell me, what do you do? He said, well, I work for an organization which has branches across the whole of the world. Really, he said? Yeah. He said, and what sort of areas are you interested in? Well, we do lots of things. We do education, we do health, we do transformation, we do life chances, we do mentoring, we do... My word, this American said. That's huge. He said, oh, it is, he said. And there are many. 
Yeah, he said, we're probably the biggest uh, movement community in the whole world. There are more than, I don't know what the numbers were, millions and billions of them. Wow, he said. He went on to talk about the profit margins, which didn't go very far. He said, well, well have I heard, have I come, have I come across this organisation? Yes, he said, it's called the church. Oh, he said. We have been called to follow Jesus as Lord and to be involved in his engagement with the whole of the world. Not just our little church lives, which are lovely sometimes, but with much bigger things. So that's the kingdom that Jesus is talking about. But then, that's only the introduction. Matthew moves on to the core of the disciples. So what happens? If you look there, we move on to verse 18. Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, and he saw the two um, brothers, Simon and Peter, and he calls them. There they were, mending their boats. Jesus says, come follow me, and I will send you out to fish for people. And once they left their nets and followed him. That is repentance. They were fishermen, and they decided to follow Jesus. It was as life-changing as that. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They're in a boat with their father Zebedee preparing the nets, and Jesus called them. And immediately they left the boat. And do you see, the, the text includes, they left the boat and their, in verse 22, and their father, and followed him. To be a disciple is an all-or-nothing affair. For them, because Jesus was going around walking about the place literally, it meant following him. They did leave. I have this picture in my mind of Matthew. Jesus walked by, do you remember, and said, uh, come and follow me. So he writes a little note, gets his assistant, he says, here, dear Elizabeth, that's his wife, um, Jesus came by, he asked me to follow him, I'm off. Uh, I don't know where I'm going, don't know what I'm going to do, uh, see you sometime, love, God bless, Matt. Can you just take that, take the books, give it all to my wife? Yes, he says, what are you doing? I'm going after him. You're what? And off he went to find Jesus. Pasolini did the film The Gospel of St. Matthew and he has this lovely scene in it where Jesus and his disciples are walking this way down a road and there's another group of disciples, uh, just people, local people coming this way and as they cross, Jesus just says to them as he goes by, the kingdom of God is just about to arrive and keeps walking. And they go, what did he say? What? And they turn around and follow. To follow Jesus is a radical new step. Now, in that, what do we see? First is this. Did you notice Jesus chose those guys? They didn't choose him. In those days, you would. You'd, go, you'd say, which is the best rabbi around here? Who's got the one that um, somehow speaks to me or understands my, my circumstances? I'll follow him. Jesus came to them and he just said, come. Jesus didn't give any detail about what it was that lay ahead. He just said, come, follow me. What it did mean was that by proclaiming that the kingdom of God had started to come. Now, Matthew and the team who worked with him, his editorial team that put together the gospel we now know as the gospel of Matthew, realized that to follow Jesus is so life-transforming that you need lots and lots and lots of help 
to understand what it's about. And so he concentrates on making Matthew a great gospel full of teaching. So you've got the first bit, which is Jesus' preparation, as I suggested. You've then you've got the whole of the Jesus' public ministry. Now, do, this is the amazing thing. Do you notice the public ministry, the, the longest section, the most striking action at the beginning of the public ministry is Jesus calling the disciples. Not the bit about the kingdom, but calling the disciples. And the last bit of gospel, Matthew, is Jesus speaking to the disciples, saying, now you go and make disciples. So you've got the call of the disciples in Mark 4. Then you've got the whole of that, and then at the end, now your turn to go and make disciples. The story of the gospel in Matthew is actually, it's an apprenticeship. These disciples were journeying with Jesus and learning on the job. That was what it was about. And we are being invited to do the same. So what we have here is Matthew helping those people realise their disciples, that they are learners. Um, I was in a church once where they wore robes. Now, I understand at APC I have to explain what robes are. <laughs> They're usually black and white, and they may have a coloured scarf or two. Um, they're not the big, complicated, heavy things which look like carpets. Those are called vestments, which, of course, you... I have to explain that as well, but won't. Um, and this vicar decided he wanted to help the, both the... Let me be honest, as a preacher, when you do a family service, you're always preaching to the adults, and the children are just there as to help you. So you speak to them in a way they understand, and then the adults say, do you know, I understood that. <laughs> it's great. So he thought, how do I get across the fact that we are all learners? Especially when you've got a congregation where you had people who got their own businesses. They were, you know, they were in charge of their lives. They got, they, most of their lives were sorted and it was going well. So on, the, on his robe, he, he, he paint, he, he um, I don't know if he was sellotaped or something. He put an L plate on the back of his surplice, that's the white thing, and walked into church from the back to do his sermon, just as we came up here. And of course, people were saying, oh, what's that on his back? And so then he got to the front and he, and he, he said, What's the matter? They say, something on your back. So he turned around and says, no, there's not any either. And of course the Jews say, oh, yes, there is. Oh, no, there isn't. And he played that for about five minutes. And then they agreed he got a learner plate, an L plate, on his back. And he said, that's because we are all learners. Every single Christian is a disciple, and a disciple is a learner. We all have L plates up. Oh, yes, they said. And they all thought it was amusing. And you can see the story travels. We are all disciples, those who've chosen to follow, to respond to the call of Christ. And we are learners. And I have to say, that's great. There are some people, I think, who get stuck in their Christian lives and then they lapse into busyness. They become Christians, they get really fired up, they do stuff, maybe five, ten years. Then they just repeat it for the rest of their lives. And I have to say, it's slightly boring. Anyway, it would be for me. But Jesus doesn't invite us to do that. He invites us to walk with him through the whole of life. Doing this now and then something else then. So here we have this pattern of discipleship that we are apprentices with learners. Jesus is our role model. And he says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, teach, proclaim and transform. Those are the three things he did. But he also says, now when he goes, you may take it on and I'd like you to do the same. Jesus is Lord, is how we proclaim it. He's at hand. Will you teach it? Will you proclaim it and transform it? And sometimes to be faithful to that is costly. It's costly within the, 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 um, the institutional church, the regular church. Um, 
I was a, a mission partner in Africa and um, was um, a lecturer in New Testament and systematic theology. Systematics, by the way, is something that in England you, you get by breathing the air because they, they don't do it very much. You have to go to Scotland to do systematic, I'm told. Um, so I taught Bible for, for people, men and women trained to be ministers. I also was the, because uh, I had an engineering background, I, I looked after the water pump at the college and the electrics and stuff like that. And my, my pièce de résistance was installing a three-phase standby power system so when the power went off. And then we, 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 we set up the whole college. And it, it was on the side of a hill. And the first time we, we set up this, this generator, it was wonderful, um, we started up, and you could see the lights coming on. It was like a necklace of light up the hill. I thought, isn't that tremendous? Wonderful. However, I did make one mistake in that, the, um, because in Africa, the different mindset, you don't plan ahead a long way because life is so uncertain. The idea of having spares and stuff like that wasn't natural, and it would be quite easy because you only use the generator pump from time to time to run out of water. So I decided we'd have an air-cooled generator so we wouldn't run risking the thing. But actually what I hadn't realized was that the water jacket around a diesel not only cools it but quietens it. So we had this wonderful generator racketing away about sort of uh, 30 meters from the principal's house. And nobody could hear a word. It was just wonderful. We had to, we had to build big earth banks and stuff. Um, anyway, be that as it may. Um, we also had a civil war, and I was the pastor to missionaries, and I spent time, um, I, uh, some people who were caught up in the fighting, uh, getting them out with bombs going off and bullets whistling over the head, uh, for real, not like in the Westerns. And after six years, I was emotionally worn out, completely drained, and I came back, and CMS said, you need to be refreshed. And, and invited me to go to a conference led by a guy called John Wimber. I think m most people have come across him. Is that right? Certainly many. And John Wimber told the story of how his ministry started. He was a, a, a rock musician, keyboard player, who became a Christian, uh, I think about four o'clock in the morning as the sun rose over a desert somewhere, and went into church not knowing at all about the culture of the church. And he, what he said was, I just want to find out more about this Jesus. Apparently it was a Baptist church, a rather prim Baptist church he went into first. And he came in and he saw only one person across the whole of the church the other side. And he did as you do in a nightclub with all the racket. He put his hand in the air and he hollered at the top of his voice, high wall. And of course everybody froze, you know, who is this? Did he not know? Dear me. And stuff like that. He worked, he wanted to know what his Lord was, going, was leading towards. So he got the book of Acts and worked through it. And he realized that here... This transformation that Jesus was talking about was amazing, and he, and he put it into practice. It said, if you do this, you do this, well, Lord, I'll do it, and he did it. And people were blessed and healed. And so he started to teach a course on Acts. And this was one of these where um, you'd have a lecture, and then there were questions. And one of the guys in this course said to him, uh, it's all very well you saying that they prayed and people were healed then, but it doesn't happen today, does it? And John Wimber says, well, why doesn't it? Well, Okay, well, if it does, then what do we do? Okay, so let's pray. So he said, so we prayed, and somebody was healed in a lecture. And he went off, and the next week, there were more people turned up at the lecture. And they did the same. They, they, they did Bible teaching for 45 minutes, and a 15 minutes of discussion and prayer, and a couple more people were healed. And the college said, excuse me, that's not what we're here for. Can you believe it? And so this went on. So at the end... Um, some of the pastors who'd sent their students to be trained at this college said, 
um, we're not sure about this. Uh, and so John's course was stood down because the church wasn't quite ready for it. Extraordinary. So they went off and, and the vineyard churches around the, the land now owe their, their founding to him. Uh, so follow Jesus sometimes means that you're out of step with others in the church. But isn't it so much more valuable to follow him than to be in step? I'd say, I hope I'd say, I, you'd say yes. We just take on where Jesus left off. We learn from him as his apprentices. And that's what Matthew's saying. It's very interesting. He couldn't say at that beginning all the things that were going to come to those disciples. They, they weren't to know that some of them were going to lose their lives as martyrs. You couldn't say that. Come and follow me in, in, in three years' time. It, it, you just started by following Jesus and going where he went. And as you saw him move around, lives were changed, situations were changed, and you thought, this is what I want to see. But you'll only know what it's about by following, by going with him. When um, I came back to this country, I went to work in Birmingham at the cathedral, and I was asked to look after the link with Malawi. And the church in Malawi and the church in Birmingham have a long-standing link. And we went out to visit a cathedral by Lake Malawi at a place called Nkotikoto. And there was this great brick cathedral built just like one of ours. They'd taken, they copied one of ours and built it there. Uh, and round the back was the churchyard. And there were the headstones. And on those headstones were the dates of the arrival and the time when they died of the young missionaries who went out to plant the church. And, you know, most of them were in their 30s and some were in their 20s. And whilst they were there, they were writing letters home saying, come out. If Jesus calls you, come. Here is where the action is. And people came. And they went knowing that they may not come back because we haven't cracked malaria and all the sort of tropical diseases. But they prayed and as the Lord said, come, they went. If, they didn't, if he didn't ask, they didn't go. There was this sense of being willing to follow even though it was costly. So where does that leave us today? Well, I hope it encourages you to think two things. Following Jesus is actually what it's really about. And second, sometimes it may be good and sometimes it may be hard. And sometimes that period of difficulty will go on for a bit. And Jesus offers not a solution always, but he offers to walk with you, to be with you, as, or more precisely for you to walk with him and to follow him. C.S. Lewis had this great gift of reflecting and writing. And in the Narnia stories, we have this lovely picture of when Lucy, one of the children who entered this magical land of Narnia, uh, is speaking to one of the animals who can speak, the beavers, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And Mr. and Mrs. Beaver are talking about how it is just, uh, this is the place where it was always winter and never Christmas. It's a place where everything's frozen. But when Aslan returns, it'll be put right. And they say, and we need to talk to Aslan to tell him about our difficulties. And of course, you remember the story, those who know it, that Aslan is a lion who um, re represents the figure of Jesus in the story. So Lucy, one of the children, says to Mr. Beaver, says, oh, so we're going to see Aslan. What's he like? Who is he? And, and they say, he's a lion. And Lucy says, oh. And... We're going to see him? Yes. 
She said, um, mm, I'm not sure about, is he safe? And you may remember these words. Mr. Beaver says, of course he's not safe. He's a lion. But he's good. And that's Jesus. Following Jesus is not following someone who's safe. He's not someone who will always be the deliverer of what you need to make you feel better or happier or answer your prayers immediately always. It's bigger than that. He is the good, the one who's taken on this world and wants to make it better and invites you and me to be part of it. We are here as his disciples to do what he did when he came. It's great we had a question mark today, uh, this last 24 hours, about what, what does the Lord want for our church? Do you know, in the Gospel of Matthew, and the Gospel of Matthew is the one where ch- the church is thought of quite a lot. The church hardly figures. Because the stage is the world, not the church. The stage is Jesus' world. He created it all. And the community of disciples, which we now know as the church, is who we're invited to be. Our vision, as we ask for the Lord what, we, what he wants us to do, is not what we as a church will do, though that's important. It's what is he doing, and how can we join in? That, for me, has been um, how we wound up in Bradford. We went to Bradford uh, as um, mission partners, as it were, uh, and when we spoke to friends here, we said that we're going to Bradford next, Janet and I, and we went there for 12 years, York, West Yorkshire, and they all went, oh dear. Then there'd be a pause, and then they said something like, but the Dales are nice. When we got to Bradford, people say, what have you come here for? <laughs> and the answer we said was this, because Jesus asked us to. And that's my prayer for you. That wherever you are, or whatever is surrounding you or facing you, if somebody pressed you, what, why, why are you doing this for? Because Jesus asked me to. Because he's my Lord. Let us pray. In a moment's quiet, would you like to just take anything that's come from the service, the preaching, the word, the prayers, the interview, and turn it into your own prayer of response. Lord Jesus, thank you that you have called us and that we are starting to follow you. And Lord, thank you you understand us and our limitations and still walk with us. Help us to open our eyes, attune our ears, to sense what you are doing and where you wish us to work with you. And set us free from just wanting to fit in. Set us free from just wanting to be comfortable. And plant within us a thirst, a hunger for righteousness. That as we seek first your kingdom, we will see you reign. And we will see lives and communities change to your glory. And this we pray in your name. Amen.